This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. On the week of October 7, 2013, this is Michael Howie welcoming you to the first episode of Defender Radio. Before we get started with this week's show, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself and this program, as well as what you can expect in the coming weeks. I'm an award-winning journalist taking a crack at the nonprofit sector after a successful 13-year career in traditional media. I've worked with the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals for over a year now, and in August took on a position with them as Director of Digital Content and Special Projects. Defender Radio is an idea we've been working toward for some time now. With the help of our title sponsor, Gates Wildlife Control, and all of you, our wonderful supporters, it has become a reality. This show will be broadcast weekly, featuring 45 minutes of interviews, news, and opinions relevant both to our mission at APFA and the greater realm of animal advocacy and welfare. It's our goal to bring forward information that will help make our audience informed consumers, educated advocates, and help further the protection of wildlife in Canada. We're also interested in hearing about your ideas, concerns, and suggestions for this show and our other campaigns. Please visit us at FurBearDefenders.com, like us at Facebook.com slash FurFree, or follow us on Twitter at FurBears and join the conversation. Defender Radio News When we talk about fur, we're talking about fashion. The fashion industry is really the only place that fur is still regularly used. But fashion designers and their proponents say that consumers are able to make choices, and they are choosing fur. Before I talk more about this, let's listen to some clips from Jimmy Kimmel Live last month during Fashion Week in New York City. We sent a crew to Lincoln Center where these runway shows are held, and we had them ask self-proclaimed fashion fans and professionals in the industry who are coming out of the shows about a variety of designers and styles that we made up. Okay, what about Eddie Munster? Um... Good aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. You know Karina Chow? Yes. Yeah, and what yeah. do you think about that line? I think it's great. I mean, the thing about Asian style is that it's very unique. Hey, let's talk about some of the more controversial things that have happened during the show. This is the men's collection. The models were sent down the runway with watermelons on their heads. It's called fashion. Look it up. You're okay with it? Um, I love it. You didn't see this? I, I saw this. You saw this? Yeah. What did you think when you saw this? If designer thinking this is part of his concept of the design, yeah. I don't mind that too, you know. I, I don't mind seeing that. Maybe he did that because he wants the attention on the suit. You know that fashion courts controversy, but some people are saying they went too far this time. If you can see, that's dog poop on the model's head. Oh, gross. The fact that I couldn't even see the dog poop shows that she's a good model. Because until you pointed it out, I was like, oh, she looks great. What's wrong with this? And then you're like, the dog poop on the head. Clearly, fans of fashion and consumers at large know what they're talking about. In fact, during our Fur Trim is a Trap campaign last winter, we met a number of people who didn't know their Canada Goose jackets were made of real feathers and real coyote fur. Some people even thought that the fur came from coyotes who were caught safely, shaved, and released. Yeah, that happened. We invite all of you to visit APFA's website at furbeardefenders.com to see some of our materials regarding the use of fur in fashion. Educate yourselves and spread the word. If you're part of an organization, 
will happily provide you with literature that you can supply to your friends, neighbors, and even strangers. Fur is not a fabric, and with your help, we can make sure that the world knows that. Defender Radio News. Today's first guest is a great friend of mine and one of my favorite scientists, Dr. Mark Beckoff. Dr. Mark Beckoff is a former professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado and co-founder with Jane Goodall of Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He has won many awards for his scientific research and has written more than 800 articles, numerous books, and has edited three encyclopedias. Mark joins us now to talk more about his field of expertise, animal emotions. Mark, how do you define your area of study? You know, basically, the study of animal emotions is really the study of what animals are feeling, um, what their point of view is on a particular situation. And, you know, what we know now just from years of research, although we knew a lot, um, you know, years ago, is that, you know, animals are smart and feeling beings who care about what happens to them. And I know, you know, sometimes people roll their eyes and go, God, tell me something that we didn't know. But, you know, there's fewer skeptics today because of what we're learning in science and because of stories that people are sharing, you know, in terms of their own experiences, um, you know, with other animals. And so it's a rapidly growing field. Um, It's all wrapped into the field that we call cognitive ethology, which when you boil it down is really the study of animal minds. Now, Mark, when we're talking about animal emotions as a field of study, how do we do that? Do we use basic observation techniques? Are there old invasive techniques? What is the general principle behind studying animal emotions? Right, and that's a, that's a, a, a great question. I mean, a lot of it is based on observation, and a lot is based on um, experimentation. And when I say that, and I want to be really careful, um, one of the things that we're learning, of course, is how emotional other animals are. And so we want to be really sure that as we learn about their emotional lives and how they feel about things, we're not abusing them. So it's one of these catch-22s. Unfortunately, and you know, some say fortunately, and we won't do it again, you know, there's been some invasive research. You know, for example, the work showing that rats are... Um, like to laugh, enjoy being tickled, or that mice show empathy. And so that research would be research I don't um, support in terms of the methodology, but we have the data, and I feel we need to use it on the animal's behalf. So the, the, the data and information we have on the emotional lives of non-human animals comes from really solid observation. It comes from some experimentation that um, I hope will never be done again. And the theory lies in Charles Darwin's ideas about evolutionary continuity, where he argued um, that the differences among animals, including humans, are differences in degree rather than differences in kind. And what um, Darwin basically meant there was simply that the differences are shades of gray and not black and white. So if we have something, you know, other animals have it too. If we have emotions, they have emotions. If we have uh, moral sensibilities, 
they have moral sensibilities. So it's, so it's a combination of a lot of things, and, I'm, and it's, it's just really exciting to, um, you know, be part of, the, part of the field, if you will. <laughs> now, Mark, with all of this research you and your colleagues have done, and with all the information that organizations like the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals are, are gathering, what do we do with it? How do we take this raw data? How do we take this information and affect change somehow? Getting out the word to educators, getting out the word to the public, if you will, about what we're learning and in some ways I'd have to say in what we um, in what we're learning and how we can how how we can apply to developing sort of standards for the ethical treatment of animals. Um, it's getting the word out to the unconverted. You know, I always say that you know we can preach to the converted forever and really feel good about ourselves but to me the real challenge is talking to people who may not be in our camp and showing them not telling them people don't like to be told what to do but showing them that we um, know enough information and, and that we're obliged to use it on behalf of the animals and in fact this is happening on um, one of the really big movements, and I think you know about it, it's called Compassionate Conservation. So it's weaving compassion into conservation, which has been um, for a long time lacking. That was Dr. Mark Beckoff joining Defender Radio to talk about animal emotions. To get more information about Mark, find his books or read his articles, visit his website at markbeckoff.com. Of course, we've linked to this on our website at furbeardefenders.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control will humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio News. We hosted our third annual Living with Wildlife Conference on September 20th in Vancouver, British Columbia. What an incredible success. It's a great thing to see so many people, from government officials to wildlife control officers to the general public, come together to look for ways to coexist with wildlife. If you weren't able to make it, check out furbeardefenders.com for videos, blogs, and a photo gallery from the event. 
and keep your ears open because we'll soon begin planning the fourth annual Living with Wildlife conference. Defender Radio News. I'm pleased now to welcome Brad Gates, president of Gates Wildlife Control. In addition to being a good friend of mine and APFA, Brad is perhaps the best friend fur-bearing animals can have in an urban area. Gates Wildlife Control has spent nearly 30 years developing humane methods to safely remove wildlife from homes and businesses, always keeping the welfare of animals a priority. Today we're chatting with Brad about urban wildlife, specifically raccoons and squirrels, and why they seem to love calling our homes their homes. Brad, before we get going, is there any difference between wildlife populations in the wild and those in urban areas? Mother Nature uh, controls wildlife populations based on the availability of food and shelter. Um, In the wild, food opportunities and shelter opportunities are not that abundant, but in the city, uh, through our green bins and um, other waste that we put outside, the animals have access to much more food, and then we look to the houses we have chimneys and attics, uh, shelter opportunities are also abundant. When an animal has that much access to food and shelter, they can breed at a higher rate than they would normally breed in the wild. So we're seeing litter sizes in the city in the range of five to seven babies, where studies have shown that litters born in the wild are generally only one to three. So the population is almost doubling at a rate twice as fast as in the uh, the wild. Most urban centers seem to have a great deal of green space these days. Why do raccoons and squirrels prefer our attics over a nice tree or a field somewhere? They're always looking uh, for den sites that are safe from predators um, and that are also protected from the elements. In urban areas, obviously, there are more opportunities than in the wild. So once an animal discovers an attic inside a home, Chances are they would never return to a hollow tree. Attics provide these large inside areas that are dry and protected from the elements. Um, They also have soft bedding called insulation, and uh, they're even slightly heated during the winter months. If I was a raccoon, that's exactly where I would want to live, in an attic. If I or someone in our audience thinks they have a wild animal in their attic, what should they do first? So many of our customers um, tend to wait for sometimes months, even we've had customers wait as, as long as a year in hopes that the animal would simply move out on its own. Um, my advice is to get them out as soon as possible. Uh, the longer you wait, the more damage they're going to cause and the more it's going to cost in the long run to repair the damage that they've done. Definitely uh, jump on it as quickly as possible. Um, you know, within the first week or so, once you've identified that you do have them inside the house. How are these animals getting into our attics to begin with? From my experience, um, most wildlife are like little tiny home inspectors. Um, They probably know your house better than you do as far as the outside structure goes. So they're constantly looking for den sites, so they're, they're always up on top of rooftops looking for flaws in the structure that they can eventually exploit. What they're looking to do is get their nose in an opening, and once their nose is in, they can begin to chew on that opening and make it larger. There are structural elements on most houses that are prime for animals to target, and they are roof vents. Roof vents are only made of lightweight aluminum, and inside they just have like a window screen. So it's nothing for a raccoon to tear the lid off a roof vent and then claw through the window screen and then climb inside. Um, They also will exploit a plumbing vent 
pipes, which are the, if you look on your roof, you see a black pipe coming in, which actually allows the wastewater to be followed by air out to the street. Underneath that rubber mat is generally a hole bigger than the pipe itself, and raccoons have learned over the years that if they rip up the rubber mat, they can enlarge the hole beside the pipe and get into the attic. They're also looking for rotten wood. Um, it amazes me how easy it is for a raccoon to discover rotten wood even beneath the shingles. There must be an odor that they pick up on because they'll go through a middle of a roof and just looking at the roof, you wouldn't see that there was a, an, a problem there. But when you look at after they've gotten in and start to manipulate the wood, you realize that it was rotten long before the raccoon came along. So overall, they're, they're just looking for weaknesses that exist um, on a rooftop. And uh, from a raccoon to a squirrel, they'll uh, once they get their nose into those spaces, they'll find a way in. Is there an easy way to figure out what animal is living in the attic? It's not always easy. Um, it depends on whether the animal can move freely in the space or if it's restricted to a wall. But generally, a raccoon, um, being a much heavier animal than a squirrel, and they tend to walk, not run. So if you were to hear the slow kind of lumbering uh, activity of a raccoon moving from one side of this room to the other, um, it tends to be a raccoon, whereas a squirrel is much more hyper, even if you watch the two of them on the outside moving about in our backyard. Um, the raccoon is in, doesn't appear to be in a great hurry, but the squirrel is always rushing from point A to point B. So a squirrel is a much more quick pitter-patter. It takes a matter of seconds for it to go across, say, a six-foot span, where a raccoon would, would take uh, much longer. Chewing with squirrels, um, because they're rodents, their front teeth are always growing so they need to grind them down. So lots of chewing, uh, generally in one specific spot. They like to pick a chewing post in, a, in an attic and go back to that time and time again. So if that's being heard, likely you have uh, squirrels. And certainly in the spring, um, baby squirrels don't make any uh, vocalizations in an attic, but raccoons definitely do. It's a chittering sound the raccoons make. It's unmistakable once that happens, once the babies are born and they're starting to... Uh, to vocalize when mom goes out at night. What are raccoons and squirrels doing up there once they get in? Most often, once they've torn that hole in the roof um, and begin to move about within the attic space, they're just simply by walking on the insulation, they're packing it down. Often when they pack down the insulation, in the case of blown-in insulation, they expose wiring. And if the wiring is there for them to chew on, they will, they will definitely... Um, go after that. They also use the attic as a washroom, which will create odors um, in the house if it's allowed to accumulate. And even if it penetrates through the insulation, can cause ceiling stains. Um, and in the spring, their primary goal, um, once they're inside the attic, is to uh, to raise the family. So they're giving birth to up to seven babies. And then the damage even gets worse from that point because when you only at some point had one adult animal moving about inside the attic, now you can have up to eight. So the, the damage that occurs um, is compounded by the number of animals that are up there. Is there anything wrong with just letting the animal stay up there? Yeah, there, there's a lot wrong with living with a wildlife problem in your home. First off, the hole that they've created is going to let rain and snow in, causing water damage um, in the attic itself and between the walls. And anytime you have moisture trapped uh, inside a home, you have the potential of having mold growing 
um, which can also be very harmful to the residents. If they choose to do the wires, there's always the potential of a fire, so that's that's a concern. And uh, and their feces, um, and especially in the case of raccoons, uh, can be harmful if someone was to go up in the attic and inadvertently come in contact with that feces. Bottom line is you, sh you shouldn't live with them. You should get them out as soon as possible. And after all, it is your number one investment. You should take care of it. Won't a raccoon or a squirrel just leave on their own after a while? Generally what happens in the case of raccoons, the mother raises the babies for nine months. So she'll give birth early spring and then have those babies up until January. There may be a period of time during the summer months where the attic might become too hot for them and they might go live under a, a deck. But as soon as the weather starts to turn again or rain uh, occurs over a period of time, they'll definitely go back into that den site. But in January, the mother will kick the babies out of the attic and then uh, she will continue to live in the space and, and go through the whole process again. So our, our experience is um, if they do leave, it's only temporarily, they will be back. What do you do once you get the call from someone who has an animal in their home? First, uh, upon receiving a call to our office about a problem, we would arrive on location, do a thorough inspection of the rooftop, determine all the points of entry, and we also look for potential points that they're going to try to exploit to get in. Based on that information, we provide a free estimate. There's no obligation for us to be out on that site and, and give you a price on what it's going to cost. During the birthing season, the first step for us to proceed is to go into the attic and locate the, the family of raccoons. Um, hopefully the mother uh, will move off the babies. Um, about 50% of the time that's the case. The other 50% she'll stand over them. Our goal is to get the babies away from her so that then we can use them as bait to uh, lure her out of the attic. Sometimes she will pursue us in the attic, but again, we, we have to be on our toes. The babies are then taken to the outside and either the mother can be lured out or, or we will use a one-way door to let her come out at night. The babies are put in a heated release box which keeps them warm, especially during the early months of March and April where their, their body doesn't have the fur on to keep themselves warm. So we want to keep the babies warm while the mother comes out to collect them. Um, once she's outside the one-way door, she's locked on the outside. She then needs to relocate her babies to an alternate den site. So once all the animals are out of the house, we secure the, the entry hole. We put shingles on if necessary. And that generally is the, uh, the entire process, with uh, the exception of if there were other areas on the house that needed to be animal-proofed, we would do that as well. What can homeowners do to prevent animals from getting in in the first place? Animal proofing is, is key, so to look to have a professional wildlife company come out, look on the roof, and look for the most common points of entry, which we talked about being uh, roof vents. We want to screen the roof vents so that raccoons can't pull the lids off. We want to screen the plumbing vent pipes so that they can't rip through that rubber membrane. Um, uh, chimneys also need to be screened because they resemble a hollow tree in the case of raccoons, and squirrels often will fall down. So just to have a company give a once-over of the house and identify the most common areas where animals do uh, like to get in. All right, that was Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. To find out more about Brad or get in touch with him, visit his website at gateswildlifecontrol.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. 
Give a gift and help protect Canada's fur-bearing animals. Learn more about our gift donations and memberships at furbearerdefenders.com. Hey, did you see that coyote? Chances are that if you haven't seen one, you've heard one. Coyotes live coast to coast in both urban and rural areas, yet few people really know much about them. Did you know that one coyote is killed every minute of every day? And did you know that coyotes mate for life and are devoted parents? Click over to projectcoyote.org to get tips and tools to help you coexist with this beneficial and misunderstood animal. Projectcoyote.org This is Defender Radio. It takes a lot of guts to stand up and tell the world what you think. There's a huge industry that teaches people the skills for speaking in public, researching, and philosophical debate. Then there's Jasmine Polsonelli. The 11-year-old activist is the youngest person in the 50-plus year history of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals to be awarded a lifetime membership. She has been featured on television and interviewed for print. I got to hang out with Jasmine at the Toronto Veg Fest in September and witnessed her skill at recalling and explaining information about trapping, the fur industry, and animal welfare in general. She is a rock star. Jasmine joins us now to talk about being a youth advocate and how she's working to get the message to the masses. Hey Jasmine, how did you get involved with wildlife and advocacy? My mom's a wildlife rehabilitator. That means she takes care of sick, injured, or orphaned wild animals. And I help my mom care for the care for and feed the animals. We have to know a great deal about the wild animals that come in so we can take care of them properly, and that can mean a lot of research. I attend vigils for, for bear defenders. It's a rule in my house that if we want to attend a vigil or a protest, you have to know why you're there, and you have to be able to answer questions. I read everything on the Forbear Defenders website, as well as Canada Growth, my personal favorite, and websites in support of the fur trade, so I can help the public understand that fur is cruel, not cool. When we hold protests, a large amount of people lie on busy streets in Toronto holding signs that educate people about fur trapping. I usually hold a light cult trap. Not many people have seen one. They're really horrible devices used by trappers. I get to speak to people about what happens to the animals when they're trapped and the cruelty behind fur. Why do you think it's important for people in your age group to be informed? People my age understand how valuable and precious life is. It's important that we're informed about things like the fur trade because many times kids are told that something's okay and it isn't. Right now, Ontario has approved a trapping program for kids ages 12 to 16. That's really wrong. They should be teaching people that age how to respect life, not how to take one. The more we know about the world, the more we can help it. And you know what? Most kids my age would not want to cause an animal to suffer. When someone asks me what could be so wrong with trapping, I ask them if they would use these devices on their dog or cat. My question is, what's the difference? There is none. They both feel the same pain and suffering. I've written to officials about this program, asking them to instead involve youth in a non-violent program that teaches us to respect and preserve our wilderness. I haven't really received any replies. What kind of challenges do you and your peers face when you're trying to spread awareness? 
Well, the biggest challenges we face is the amount of false information out there. So many mindless traditions. It can get really difficult at times to explain something to someone if they've been taught the opposite all their life and don't want to accept that they've been lied to all their life. So they rather think that we're the ones lying. What kind of advice do you offer people your own age or even adults who want to get more informed or get involved? I start like this. Patrick Babumian is an athlete but just so happens to be vegan. He was told by so many people that he'd never be able to be a heavy weightlifter if he was vegan, but he didn't listen to them. Despite what people told him, he did his own research and wasn't afraid to be different. Patrick set a world record recently for the heaviest weight ever lifted on a yoke. My advice for those who want to be more informed is don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to be the one standing alone in your views, not to follow the crowd. Join groups that tell you what it's like for the victims, such as Fur Bear Defenders and Coyote Watch Canada. They do fantastic work for wildlife and for people with coexistent programs. Whatever you're concerned about, remember, never give up. Always do the best you can. That's really important. That was Jasmine Polsonelli, an 11-year-old activist who I think we'll be hearing a great deal more from in the future. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash furfree. Joanne MacArthur is the renowned photographer behind the We Animals Project and the central human focus of the award-winning film The Ghosts in Our Machine. Her impressive body of work includes investigations into fur farms, slaughterhouses, and more. Today we're talking with Joe about the impact of her work in the animal rights and advocacy movement, the legalities of her investigations, and the emotional toll it can all take. Joe, a lot of folks out in the world don't like looking at the traditional images associated with animal rights or animal welfare. Do you think that's starting to change, and do you think it's representative of a change in the movement itself? We're, we're up against a lot. But people, this issue is getting out into the media more and more and more. It's more in our faces. People are being forced to look at it just because of its, its increased visibility. And, um, and I think that if we just, you know, start prying those doors open bit by bit by bit and shining light on these issues and making visible the uh, the problems people will look and I think they will care and uh, I think it's just we just have a lot of work ahead of us and that work is happening in a really great way right now I'm really optimistic a lot of the traditional photos we see in campaigns are very visceral and violent they're pictures of animals being killed your work doesn't always seem to focus on the gore but more on the connection that can be found between that animal and the viewer do you think this is more effective than the traditional way of showing those images well, if you look at my slaughter work, um, yes, I am trying to make a connection uh, between the subject and the viewer. But even in the slaughter work, um, some of the more well-known We Animals pictures, for example, the rabbit looking directly into the camera and the rabbit is next in line for slaughter. Um, it's still about understanding the animal's experience. And uh, you can get a lot of that when you photograph close-ups of their faces within uh, within the context of their environment. So even even in situations of slaughter, I'm not trying to be gruesome, and it's certainly a gruesome atmosphere. But just get get close to the animal and um, and document their reactions to what's going on. And it's the same with the goat and cow slaughter that I shot in Tanzania. It's uh um here they are close up. Um, about to get killed, but look at the expressions on their faces and look at their environments and 
Um, it's not it's not about the net, the knife slicing across the neck. It's about it's about their faces, really. You've done investigations in the fur farms where mink, fox, and other animals are raised prior to slaughter for their fur. I think most people can now imagine what life is like for an animal on a traditional farm, but so far, many people don't seem to know about fur farms. What part of that story do you try and tell? It's not just the animals in the cage. It's about the, you know, the, the kits, you know, six kits curled up to their dead mother. Uh, so that's not about the cage. It's about, it's about family and also showing what's underneath the cages, you know, piles and piles of, of shit and their sensitive noses that have to smell that all day. I mean, when we go to places like this, our eyes water and we have allergies for days afterwards because of the stench and what we're ingesting. But imagine them who are way more sensitive than us living with that. And also something about fur farms is that I would say almost almost all the time they're in a forest or right next to a forest. So imagine what it's like to be in this tiny cage the length of our arm and yet, you know, they live in that for life, but they can see freedom. They can they can, they look at freedom all day. Just beyond just beyond and they can smell, you know, they the wind comes in and they can smell that forest. So it's things like this as well that I'm trying to incorporate into the story to make it a stronger story. Um, and I mean, I don't, I don't know how many people have seen my, my first stories, really. I know that the campaigns have used the images extensively, but they also have to use the more shocking imagery. Um, that's just their, that's just their, like their way of doing it. And you only have a certain amount of real estate on a pamphlet, right. For, for, for a campaign. So you can't put in all the long storytelling about the smells and, the more abstract imagery. So I can do that with the animals though. And uh, Liz can do that with the film. In order to document the living conditions and suffering of so many of these animals, you need to, by the very definition, trespass illegally on the properties. How are you able to justify that? Because there should not be laws protecting this kind of obscene and unnecessary cruelty. So there is, you know, the law of the land and the politicians and the government, but there is, if I can be so bold, a higher law, and that is no no cruelty, especially on this scale, should ever be taking place. And I think that um, if any human were to see this, they would, almost any human would agree that this is unacceptable. And um, I don't like breaking the laws, and it does upset me, and I don't like ever lying to anyone. Um, but there's a more important issue here, much more important than a trespassing law. And that's the suffering of millions and millions and millions of animals. So, I mean, trespassing is the least I can do to, to get in and take a few pictures to educate people. But following that logic, couldn't I say that I think my neighbor is abusing his dog, so I need to sneak in and look around his place? Well, there are authorities that can protect dogs. Um, we don't have to go in and do the rescue personally. There are cruelty investigators in cities or in rural areas, and there is some level of protection afforded to our, our, our pets, our companion animals. Um, so, you know, we can take matters into our own hands, but we don't necessarily need to. Whereas there's absolutely no protection for the fur-farmed animals, the food animals, and there's no visibility there either. So... Um, I mean, the law is not on my side. I don't, uh, and the law is not on the side of the animals. Um, so we have to do it. You know, investigators have to do what we can to to get in. 
And, and it's, I mean, that's a, that's a small price. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe I will get into some big trouble later on. And, uh, but I'm hoping not. I'm very careful in the work that I do. And, uh, hopefully I can continue with it as long as I possibly can. In Ghost, you talk about your experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. Could you share a bit about that with us? Well, I thought I was invincible until I wasn't, um, as I think is the case with many of us. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's traumatizing to see the suffering and it's traumatizing to leave them behind. And I think trauma is actually the correct response. Uh, it's not a weak response. I think it's, it's, uh, we should be traumatized and horrified by the things that we see, whether, you know, even people just seeing my images, it's, it's traumatizing to, to bear witness to what the animals go through and, uh, activists have to protect themselves and look after themselves so that they can continue their work. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't realize I was having a problem until one morning I woke up and I realized that for months now, my very first thought in the morning, very first thing in my head would be, you know, like a, a pig in a gestation crate or animals suffocating in dumpsters and no one should wake up with those thoughts. So we have to um, do things to celebrate change and focus on change and be part of change. And also simple things like, you know, doing things that make us happy and, and resting and, and uh, eating well and, and drinking enough water, like really, really basic things. Having tools. Also, there's a really great book called Aftershock, which I recommend to every activist out there. And it's uh, it's tools to help us cope with the trauma that we that we deal with in this world. It's written by Patrice Jones, and and everyone should read it. It gives you tools to to handle the things that we see. So yeah, I'm traumatized, and I and I should be traumatized. And uh, but there are ways of navigating the world without living in that trauma. And so I had a therapist for a while, and I read a read a book, and I, you know, have the tools now to to handle, handle being traumatized as best I can. Joe, I want to thank you for the work you've done and for joining us today. To learn more about Joanne MacArthur and her photography, visit her website at weanimals.org. That's our show for this week. On behalf of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals and Defender Radio, with the support of Gates Wildlife Control, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.